Hello, and welcome to the Travel Japan with Wes Mather podcast. In this series, we explore living, working, studying, and of course, traveling in Japan. I hope to inform you on how to travel smart, safe, and with confidence, all while hopefully having an amazing time abroad. Everything you hear will be based off of my personal experiences, research, and experiences of others that I know. I'm your host, Wes Mather, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening, and now let's begin. Thank you for joining us on Travel Japan with Wes Mather, where we talk about Japanese news, culture, and answer questions on travel. I'm your host, Wes Mather, and joining us today is my co host and enthusiast in Japanese culture, Brandon Bates. Welcome to the show, Brandon. How are you doing this evening? I'm good, Wes. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Low key day, a lot of time editing in the office, which is also just my room, so yeah, solid day. And I'm excited hey. about this podcast. That's the day that everyone dreams of, right? <laughs> there we go, without a All doubt. All right, man. So, I guess we're going to be uh, switching things up a little bit different on your podcast, right? Yeah, correct. Now we have uh, two hosts basically leading us through, which should up the level of energy. So I'm excited about that, without a doubt. Awesome, man. Yeah, so um, I think some of the things that we should uh, discuss right off the bat here is maybe share with some of your uh, followers the changes that we're making. And a couple, the one that we're going to start off with is uh, Japanese news. And uh, I believe that we have some pretty good stories lined up for everyone today. What do you think? I'm excited about this new segment too because、uh, I am very interested in current news and I see it every morning here in Japan. So sharing that could be interesting. And that was something that when I was in the States also, I found it hard to find an outlet where I could get、uh, daily or weekly Japanese news. So hopefully we can help provide that here. Yeah, absolutely, man.、Um... I believe that、uh, how we're going to be doing this is let's just take turns reading off some of the news articles that we thought were pretty fun that、uh, caught us by our eye this week and maybe uh, hopefully uh, let the rest of the world know what、Absolutely. we have found,、uh, what's going on current events in Japan. So,、Very、you want to、cool. go ahead and start with yours? Sounds good. We're going to start with some news topics focused on travel. Now, the first one will be the, the implementation of a new technology that will basically set up robots、uh, at every store to check if people are wearing a mask as well as social distancing. Now, I'm sure it's the same in many places listeners might be living in. However, at many stores that can remain open through quarantine, there is an individual whose job it essentially is to make sure everyone that enters the store wears a mask and social distances when they line up. And this also causes an issue because that person is also involved. Being you know, within proximity to other guests. So, if that person can be changed into a robot, which is the plan of this、uh, Kyoto based tech organization, then that will reduce the spread of COVID because robots, as far as we know now, cannot get COVID. And it's been implemented in one store、uh, to a great response. This robot can basically use lasers and sensors to check how far people are standing apart from each other and give a kind reminder to a distance if that's not the case, as well as check with facial recognition. Whether or not they are or are not wearing a mask. Wow, which, that's、uh, crazy. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of technology、this. going into this little robot. I actually see these robots all around Japan already, primarily at、uh, tech stores. Like if you go into、uh, SoftBank or Docomo, which is、uh, the cell carriers, maybe the equivalent of an ATT, they'll be there to greet you and basically ask what you're doing there and then tell you how long to wait or assign you to an actual human that will help you with whatever service you need. So、ah. it's the same robots. It's just repurposed. So the technology is there, I think, just the software is being、uh, repurposed, which I think is great. And, and they're cute. I、too. mean, with, the, with COVID being such a new thing in the world today、mm-hmm. and how drastically f- 
uh, fast everything had to change for everyone, I, I can see it still being uh, like uh, very much maybe more of a beta thing that they're working on, but it's cool to see that they're actually getting it out there. Yeah, absolutely. There's one of these robots already uh, working out there uh, until November 20th. I believe it's a trial run, and if it works out well, which so far there's been positive um, feedback, then they'll be implemented in a lot of stores across Japan. And I do see people when I enter a store reminding me to uh, sanitize my hands at a little station they have before I go in, as well as checking if I wear a mask. However, across the board in Japan, I don't think I've ever seen anyone not really wear a mask in a store. Uh, so that might not be as much needed as it will be for it to remind people to distance or so. But yeah, it's helpful. I think it's great. Yeah, I feel like it'd be difficult to believe that too many people in the States would take a robot seriously <laughs> whenever it requests you to put on a mask, yeah. uh, as much as it would in Japan, um, though. <laughs> it'd be pretty cool, actually, if uh, when the robot would suggest putting on a mask, if it offered to uh, give you hand sanitizer as well as you walked in the door. You know, right? like it had a little pump, like electronically Ooh, waiting for you. That. <laughs> maybe I love that's a, sci-fi. Maybe that's an yeah. update that they can have. On the Bro, robot they should the hire you, right? You got to work <laughs> for this team. That's thinking forward. Yeah, no, I love them. They're cute, I think, and they're really cool. Uh, they're based off the Pepper robot that's been implemented in Toyota's industry, and uh, they also they have other services that they can actually show you where to go in the store, and that is programmed store by store. But if you like walk into an auto mechanic store and you need to buy oil for your car, it can show you to the proper oil that you need, um, according to this article. So that it is should be crazy. helpful on many levels. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it it does way more than I already thought it was going to do. You know. Yeah. Uh huh. And yeah, when you when you first think of it, oh, a robot that just tells you to put a mask on. <laughs> okay, it's like a Walmart greeter, right. but then you find out, <laughs> oh, it has way more purpose than that. Mm, it's really exactly. cool. That it uses like IR sensors too, and yeah, figures out that people are not distanced enough. That's that's really smart. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt, uh, the base of all this tech is true is safety. So this will be one less person that has to be out there in the workforce, uh, exposed to possible um, getting COVID yeah. transmitted to them. So that's fantastic. I'm sure that's probably one of the most scariest positions for most people too, is having to mm. greet every single person that walks into a store and recommending mm. that they, you know, wash their hands, yeah. keep their distance, and wear a mask. So Absolutely. that's that's definitely a very important role, in my opinion, for a robot to uh, handle a human's job. You know. Yeah, I second that completely. I'm sure and the human that used to have that job is probably just <laughs> as gracious as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, big, it's all smiles behind the masks. You can see the, see the smiles in the, their eyes. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's going to be great to see uh, that tech making people's lives more safe. And I think that just about covers it for the Rubrik Reader. Uh, do you want to move on to your topic or anything else you want to add about that? Uh, I think we can move on to the next one. What do you think? Yeah, I think that covers it. I'm just excited to see more of these. And if I do, you can rest assured I will have a uh, TikTok video about it out within days of my encounter. (laughs) Absolutely. That'd be awesome. Cheers. All right. So the uh, next story that we have here is kind of a funny one. And we're (laughs) going more into um, the meme realm of Japan. So... You know, we, we've seen a lot of uh, bad English in Japan because it's more of a marketing tool, more of a decoration piece that they use rather than actually translating the words because English just looks good on products, right? So not always when you pick up a product in Japan is it going to say what it's meant to say or it's mistranslated or how it's translated just seems like directly translated just seems silly to the person who reads it in English, mm. who is native to English. Absolutely. Um, 
in this situation kind of caught by storm on the internet and <laughs> in my opinion it's pretty funny so uh, what we have here is there is a department store in Kyoto that has and, and it's advocating towards uh, trying to um, just you know suggest safety about COVID-19 wearing masks and so and so forth in Kyoto right but how they translated this by accident and the poster that they put up it's it's a wonderful poster of like a, a school of koi fish rising up in the background with a little girl uh, wearing a mask that has koi fish on it and <laughs> <laughs> it says rising again and this is the English translation rising again save the world from Kyoto Japan so <laughs> It makes it seem like we need to save the world from the up-ruling, rising, you know, world that may come of, or Kyoto takes over, so. <laughs> and for those listeners that don't know, Kyoto is uh, the old, it's a prefecture of Japan, it's the old capital, and it is the most traditional, quaintest, the nicest little city you could imagine. And then there's just this, like, really innocent, peaceful-looking cartoon of a person. But, yeah, exactly, like, described, saying, rising again, save the world from Kyoto, Japan. This is amazing. <laughs> and I love, this is the first Japanese meme I've seen in a hot second. <laughs> it's a pretty good one. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's hitting social media by storm. Uh, it's like as if Kyoto is a rising superpower and that the world is <laughs> going to be fighting this terrible final boss like it's a video right. game. And that's how people like... are taking it in the chats, yeah. you know. Uh, uh, like, for instance, we got some comments that people have replied to this poster. Like, is Kyoto the enemy of the world? Are Kyoto attacking the world by sending koi <laughs> fish to smother their faces? It's absolutely hilarious. I'm a huge fan <laughs> of that. it. Uh, yeah, they, they got pictures of, like, uh, empty streets and it says, Why, stay home from the rising of Kyoto, Japan. <laughs> oh my god. I love it. That's the best. What do you think they're trying to say before they did the Google Translate for their ad? I think what they were essentially saying is that they want to knock coronavirus out of the park and they were saying that it was rising again mm. and that um, Kyoto should save the world. It should rise up by you know <laughs> showing that they are going to not take it lightly you know yeah that's how i yeah. kind of thought they were going for but the mistranslation does make it pretty fun to to read mm, absolutely and a lot of the times um so first of all i do work in commercial media in japan and almost every single time my client will show me previous ads where they have used google translate to basically have a more global ad and it's almost always incorrect just because Japanese and English both rely a lot on nuance to get a point across and a literal translation will not really do the job so you know I do some slight corrections however none of them have been detrimental to the actual goal of the ad is this one <laughs> it's wild <laughs> and, um, and honestly yeah. what it probably was is they didn't have someone like US where they uh, mm. kind of like had a native English person second look <laughs> you know take, take yeah. a look at this before they started spreading it and printing it out everywhere and hanging it up all mm. over Kyoto you know absolutely uh, yeah which is probably something that Japanese companies should maybe take more seriously you know you got Olympics coming up uh, that they've postponed mm. until this upcoming year and they're going to have people yeah. from all over the world that most speak English and 
I do know that when you are in Japan, a lot of the mistranslations can be hilarious, but uh, I think that products could be better <laughs> described and understood and s sold mm -hmm. easier to people who speak English if they just had someone like you who, <laughs> you know, is native English, is, um, you know, learning Japanese, and you're, you're doing very good at it, by the way. And Thank you so much. And you... Uh, are able to tell them uh, you can't put that on there you know that's that's not that's yeah. not what you're trying to advertise let's let's maybe try to do this um, exactly and takes one question <laughs> and and all they got to do is you know uh, just hire a few marketing kids from America you know heck yeah so if you are out there if you are a native English speaker out there learning Japanese then that could be a possible future job option for you uh, if this sign picks up traction I mean I'm thankful this happened because this is hilarious but um yeah I say, <laughs> I say we uh, maybe move on to the next one. What do you say? Perfect. Yeah, let's jump to that. So now we're going to jump to our second story of national news, which is the abolition of the Hanko stamp for a lot of business in Japan. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, Hanko is the process of having your family name as a stamp in which you use to formally sign any sort of paperwork that is very official. This is used a lot in business as well as uh, taking out loans. It's used for setting up for bank accounts and uh, any sort of legal sort of contract. So this is an age-old tradition and I think it's personally pretty cool because you know you have a stamp, you have a seal, it's very official. However, with uh, the advent of COVID uh, taking over and making a lot of people work from home, there have been a lot of instances where people could not continue with a business transaction unless somebody physically drives into work with their Hanko, their Hanko stamp to actually stamp the document. Uh, it's a tradition that's very doesn't fit at all with with remote work or with an age of um, basically online business. So that's going to be something that's being phased into Japanese society is using online signatures and digital signatures as an alternative to the Hanko stamp. And I believe it's not for every single use where traditionally a Hanko stamp has been required. However, it's for a lot of them. And again, the base of this is for safety. It's so that people don't have to be face to face where they could contract COVID from somebody else uh, and able to sign a document. And I think that's fantastic. However, actually, a side note, I did order my own Hanko stamp this year, mainly because I thought it was cool, even though I don't have a Japanese last name. It's the most basic one I'm sure this company has ever made. It's just Masa. Mather is Masa. It's two very boring characters, but I wanted one, so I'm too that's late. That's awesome, man. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that I, I know that I have a lot of friends that um, mm -hmm. in Japan they've they've had to ha they've had to um, keep that Hanko stamp with them almost anywhere they go if they knew that they had to sign documents that day, you know? So if they had oh, to go yeah. to the bank or if they wanted to purchase a car or if they wanted to really do anything that required what you and I would use as a signature, a Hanko stamp mm -hmm. is what they would use in Japan for most of those things. And oh, uh, yeah. you can get 10 people running around like, uh, like the building is on fire if you show up to a <laughs> bank without your Hanko stamp and you're trying to withdraw and you tell them you lost it or something, you know? <laughs> Um, yeah, but it mm. is good to see that that's one of the older traditional things in Japan that's kind of being phased out. I think mm. because mm -hmm. I mean, although I do think it would be cool to have a stamp with my name on it, I I think that it would be horrible that I would have to carry that little thing around with me all the time because you never know throughout your day whether or not you would need it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, it's a fantastic tradition, but it can be respected as a tradition while not inhibiting people's uh, day-to-day life and especially not uh, jeopardizing anyone's safety if they have to actually physically meet somebody in the midst of a pandemic. So I think that's fantastic. The actual first person to put forth this idea was met with a lot of backlash, actually. They tweeted about this. Hold on. I think it would be beneficial to read the actual name. Yeah, Taro Kono, minister uh, in charge of regulatory reforms tweeted about this saying they wanted to abolish the stamp without much context actually um, not so much in events and there was a lot of backlash against that saying that it was kind of undermining traditional Japanese culture uh, but then you know later statements said it's for safety and it's really gonna make a lot of things uh, things a lot easier in the age of modern business so I think people are actually getting more uh, stoked on the idea and yeah it's one of the kind of vest- vestiges of the past that's is like you said being phased out to make life more easy for business and uh, industry to thrive in Japan. Yeah, man. I I kind of can genuinely say that <laughs> it it makes sense why. I mean, Japan's always, in my opinion, always wanted to keep as much of their traditions and their culture, you know. And even with the uh, rise of capitalism in Japan, you know, the drastic mm-hmm. changes in culture in the early fi- or in the fifties and the sixties and such, and they kind of had to redevelop their culture from mm-hmm. almost scratch. They, those are some of the few things they wanted to hold on to, and I can understand why. With you know, a rise of maybe thirty percent of Japanese people alive today are over the age of sixty. You know, it's a very old society in Japan, and uh, it's very easy to see that um, most of the people who yeah. can have a say in Japan are older and they want to keep that tradition so it makes sense to see that people would have a serious backlash on that yeah yeah absolutely tradition is very widely expect, um, respected here um, but you know some things should evolve absolutely and I think this is absolutely one of them too so that is the second point of our national news and uh, Brandon would you like to continue on with our next event so what we have here in Japanese events is we are going to be looking at a lantern festival in Sumino Park. It's going to be, I believe, December. Yeah, it looks like the 19th of December and the 20th of December. Everyone will get like a uh, LED lantern that they get to lift off and uh, it'll illuminate the sky for everyone to see and different colored lamps. It's pretty cool. And this definitely is more of a family style event where they're kind of bringing on more of the Christmas tradition the western Christmas tradition Mm -hmm. they have like a Santa greeting which is something you really don't see in uh, Japanese culture you know (laughs) very true and they're going to have a uh, food truck called the kitchen car that seems to be pretty popular with a variety of you know corn soup hot beef sandwich turkey leg curry garlic shrimp and I'm talking these are American foods so if you are anywhere (laughs) <laughs> around I believe this is not too far outside Tokyo and mm. you know you are a foreigner and you're looking for that you know feel good homey uh, Christmas feel and you're away from the holidays and you can't go back home maybe this is an opportunity for you to mix a little bit of the Japanese lantern festival culture and still get a little bit of your western stomach filled the way you're used to you know and mm-hmm. we've got some handmade stuff that people are making everywhere from accessories to glasswork to, you know, art flowers and interior goods and hats and all the cool Christmas goods that people are making by hand. And they're going to have some stage performances from 
just uh, comedians to singers to it looks like they have themselves a magician and then a Ooh, uh, jazz cool. and then a jazz musician. Heck yes! So we got a magician and a musician back to back, and the finest jazz that they will deliver to you live. Sounds great. Nice. What I like most is actually uh, the affordability of this festival. They have a few different prices that they have um, available for tickets. One adult ticket's only uh, 4,500 yen, mm. which really isn't that much, you know. But mm. if you're going to get a group ticket with like four people, it's only it's 17,000 yen. That's really not that bad. Oh, heck yes. You what? know? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, four adult people, you get four um, LED sky lanterns and 17,000 yen. Like that's that's nothing. 2500 yen mm. per child between the ages of 6 and 12 and then children under between the ages of uh, 0 and 5 years old, it costs absolutely nothing. So, if you got Very cool. little ones, you're saving a little bit of money too. Heck yeah. Does that sound like a that. festival that you maybe try to go to, Wes? Absolutely. And I can say, after spending, I think, three Christmases here, um, Christmas is, oddly enough, even though I love it here, one of the times of the year that I do get like more a bit homesick than other times, just because traditionally I've always spent it with family, mm-hmm. and the absence of that is uh, noticeable. So the fact that they do have like an effort to incorporate some American-style Christmas uh, traditions here, I would look forward to as a foreigner living in Japan. And I have attended a similar event to this in the States before. Granted, it was much more expensive, as you touched upon, um, but it was mind-blowing. Uh, just lighting the fire in the lantern and watching it float away is stunning. Uh, it's actually environmentally friendly because the thing does uh, evaporate into flame once it does get the atmosphere. Oh, that's and, great. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's beautiful. It's like It's dreamlike. And I took so many photos and videos, but nothing really encompassed the whole experience just being surrounded by a million lights in the sky like that. And then, you know, the people there too, it was great to experience that with people I was uh, close with. So definitely if you're in Japan, uh, check this out. For coming years too, hopefully it's a recurring event. Yeah, and it looks like according to the photos they took from last year and posted on their gallery, it looks like a really fun event. All right, well, I think we should move on to the uh, final and last news that we have for the day. Fantastic. Okay, so we will be ending our new segment with something pretty fun. Um, so 11-11, uh, November 11th, is actually Pringles Day, National Pringles Day in Japan. There's not any word on how it became Pringles Day, and it is actually also National Pocky Day. So it's a marketing tactic, and it's Pocky Day because 1-1 one, one looks like Pocky. Oh, yeah. Possibly, however, yeah, Pringles jumped on that too, which is fine. And they did celebrate that with something very cool, which is releasing a uh, huge Pringles can, 161 <laughs> centimeter tall can of Pringles. Yeah, that's wild. And uh, for people not using the imper- uh, imperial system of measurement, that is five foot and two inches of Pringles. And uh, there's Jeez. photos of the guy. So you, you can't buy this. You win it in a giveaway that you sign up for. But this recipient uh, is actually not as tall as that. So this Pringles can is taller than this uh, recipient of the Pringles, which is great. I suppose. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, their motto is, what is it? Once you pop, you can't stop. Yeah. And uh, the news article, we're gathering this, the sources say that they have to stop because <laughs> this is more Pringles than is human in this situation. But yeah, it's a fun promotion for the uh, brand Pringles, which is actually fairly popular in Japan. It's at most convenience stores. I see it around. And whenever I go out drinking with friends, we pick up Pringles to eat sometimes uh, snacks or people usually buy them for me 
because they want to get some American snacks in the mix. And yeah, he shares them at work by literally tipping the can of Pringles towards his employees and his, uh, to other cubicles, and they can receive Pringles that way. Uh, there are photos of him carrying it along the street. It just slung over his shoulder. <laughs> like, um, it's reminiscent of, for, for photo- uh, photography work, I buy long paper rolls of backdrop paper. Yeah. And it's the same way that I carry that along the trains and streets. So, there it is. Yeah, it just kind of looks like it's he's carrying day. around a giant tube of maybe, like, canvas <laughs> paper or something. But you look closer, yeah. and it's just a giant <laughs> Pringles can that's the size of the guy carrying it. Yeah. No, exactly. I can't. You would get so you know. sick if you were to try and eat that entire can in one yes. sitting. Um, yeah, let's hope he can stop the popping. Uh, what do you, what do you think it's going to take him? A couple weeks? Maybe a month to finish that can on his own? Or That would be the healthiest thing. <laughs> but, uh, let's, hope, let's hope for this guy's arm. I'm, I'm telling you, you guys, know. you couldn't fit both your arms in length to reach the bottom of that can. <laughs> no, yeah, that is a uh, coma-inducing level of sodium. <laughs> so points to Pringles and points to this recipient of the winner. And to finish this new segment, it will be available for purchase in the future, says Pringles. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, yeah, if you ever find yourself in need of an ungodly amount of Pringles, then your questions are answered. It'll be available. Uh, maybe whenever maybe I uh, have my wedding and I need a caterer to come over and feed <laughs> the entire, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. So happy belated Pringles Day to everyone who missed this celebration, such as myself. And, you know, I'm excited for next 11, 11 we'll as well. We'll have to mark your calendar for next year so you can uh, apply to try and maybe win that and their giveaway yes. next year, yeah. you know. Oh, I'll be applying. I'll be applying without a doubt. <laughs> and again, I'll... T- I'll try to, if I win, or if I can purchase one, I will be making media on that uh, joyous occasion myself. So, sweet. And I think that wraps up news, unless you have any other thing, anything else you want to add on? on no, no, actually. I, it's just it's just crazy. I think that we should maybe uh, share mm-hmm. some of the photos that we have here uh, with audience members. Yes. Um, if you guys are not mm-hmm. following Wes on his Discord server yet, I highly suggest it. It's a wonderful server, very uh, close community of people. I think you just hit your 2,000 mark mm. this week, didn't you? Correct. Yeah, that's 2, right. 2,000 people, uh-huh. we man. Have 2,000 members. Woo! Very that exciting. went up quick. And how it long did, have you had yeah, your Discord I server? I started this. I would say six months. Six months. Uh huh. 2,000 uh-huh. people in six uh, months. Almost six wow. months. Yeah. Maybe we can uh, set up a cool channel for everyone to uh, just you know share the photos and uh the stuff that we have on the podcast on the days that we yeah release the podcast and if you're on the server you'll Absolutely. be one of those lucky few to kind of look at the photos as we discuss it and see what's going on without a doubt and then side note brandon and i brandon and i did actually meet through that discord and the discord platform will be sort of a foundation for the things we do discuss in the podcast so if you do want to be a part of the podcast and any further episodes then that would be a fantastic jumping off point yeah Absolutely, and yeah. We have uh, different we things. We did meet on yeah. We did uh-huh. meet on Discord. That's great. That's right. Exactly. Very cool. We are now going to jump into the rest of the podcast. Thank you so much for checking out this week's segment of Japanese news, and please stay tuned for more news of next week. So now we're going to go back into my experience studying abroad, where we left off last week. So season one, episode three of the Travel Japan with West Mather podcast. Thank you so much for coming back to listen to us, and if you're joining us for the first time, then welcome. So in episode 1 and episode 2, I basically did talk about preparing for my trip to Japan, applying for the program and the scholarships, and then leaving America 
And then in episode 2, I covered arriving in Japan, what uh, surprised me, the things that I found helpful to do at the airport and upon arrival, all the way up to my placement test and first class. So from here, I'm going to take it after the classes began. I think in this episode, we're going to touch a lot upon how teaching Japanese is often structured, what to learn first, and how the entire lesson plan can be drawn out. From first learning the basics, hiragana, which is kind of like the equivalent of the ABCs, all the way to writing sentences and working here. Um, and then to switch completely from education, I'm going to talk about my first night out in Japan, which was something that was very exciting and very different. Uh, still to this day, I think things surprise me about nightlife in Japan. I'm also going to include the news and the question answering segment as last time, as well as a uh, Japanese vocabulary segment at the very end. For those of you who want to stick around, who are trying to learn Japanese yourselves, the phrases that I find useful that kind of correlates to the contents of this episode. Okay, so here we begin. So it was my first day of classes and I was very excited as you would expect. I woke up early because of the time change still kind of having me up and ready naturally at around 5-6 a.m. every day, which you know is fair and I do enjoy that. So I got dressed in clothes I thought looked super cool and I made up in my mind that I would try to be as cool as possible for a good first impression. However, that did not definitely end up happening at all because I was so excited about everything. And my walk to class was very enjoyable. I did say previously that I would describe the area more clearly, and uh, it was a fairly rural part of Osaka, um, northern Osaka, Mino, and it's surrounded by rice fields and great quaint houses, a lot of them more modern in Japanese architecture, which I find a really comforting sort of architectural style. The walk to class had vending machines periodically on either side of the road, and I stopped to get a morning coffee, which I really much enjoyed. Boss Coffee from Japan, they don't sponsor me or anything, but I cannot recommend them enough if you enjoy black coffee. I think they are great. In the middle of my walk to class, which was about 10 minutes I'd say, there are these pathways that go directly through the rice fields. So if you don't know, these fields are basically just whole blocks of the uh, town that are just tall grass, tall green grass, and they're beautiful I think, and there are dragonflies surrounding them, and at nighttime there are sounds of frogs. Although some people say those sounds of frogs are kind of annoying when you're trying to sleep, I don't mind them for whatever reason. But yeah, the pathways through these blocks of rice fields were concrete, probably about 4 to 5 feet across, and then on either side they drop off around 3 feet down into where the rice is planted. And it was a very beautiful and aesthetic walk to class. I arrived on campus and our classes were going to be on the 6th story of a tall brick building. The window from the classroom overlooked the soccer field where you could see soccer clubs and baseball clubs practicing in front of the Mina Osaka mountainside. As I did mention earlier, uh, out of the 3 classes, I placed in the C class, which is the class with the lowest Japanese language skill. I did mention earlier that my language placement test put me in C class with other students that had zero Japanese language capability. So within this podcast, I can take you from actual zero to where I am working today in regards to the progression of Japanese language study. I came kind of early because I know I am kind of prone to get distracted and lost, especially in a new place, and that does hold true to this day when I'm traveling Japan. So there were about four or five other students there. And we sat and kind of talked and introduced ourselves, uh, as we hadn't had a chance to really do so during orientation on a more personal level, while we watched the rest of the class filter through and fill in the seats. So here, within the dialogue, I'm going to lay out how our teachers structured our language courses, and this can be helpful if you're going to do self-study for Japanese, because when you're approaching a task as monolithic as learning a whole new language, I think it can be tricky and overwhelming to choose where to start. And I'm sure there are multiple ways to do so, and multiple right answers. However, this is how our teachers structured our class for us. So to set the stage for how our lesson plan was taught to us, all the students arrived and we sat in a semicircle all facing the window and waited for our teacher to arrive. 
And lo and behold, Michael, who I did briefly introduce in the last episode, was in my class, which was fantastic. He made the initiative to make the group Facebook for all the students that were studying abroad this summer so that we could all organize events and plan things together and share photos. He was very outgoing and uh, ended up being one of my great friends, which I mentioned, and that probably has a lot to do with the fact that we were in the same class too. And just to reiterate, I do keep bringing up the other students that I studied abroad with because I think in this podcast sharing their experiences and how they were different from mine will be helpful as well. So our teacher arrived, she introduced herself, let's call her, let's call her Miss Sato. So in Japanese that is Sato Sensei for a teacher and that is probably what I will call her from here on out. She went over our lesson plan for the coming summer and I think this could be helpful for anyone that is gonna do self-regimented study for Japanese. She started off by saying that in Japanese there are three main alphabets and not to be intimidated by that. The first most basic one is hiragana and learning that would be important for pronouncing every single Japanese word or phrase. And we were basically expected to learn this within three days. Hiragana has 46 base characters and can be used to phonetically spell out any single Japanese word. And it is a great first step for anybody looking to study Japanese. Each character does correspond to a single sound and there is an order to that similar to the ABCs. It goes kind of like A, I, U, E, O, Ka, Ki, Ku, Ke, Ko, and so on. So I initially thought that is a lot to learn. I had tried a bit to learn Hiragana before I came here. However, after my placement test, I realized I really did not internalize it at all, not nearly as well as I thought. Next, on top of that, we were expected to learn within the first two weeks, katakana, which is the exact same sounds, all 46 of them, however, different character systems. And these characters are used when the sounds, when the vocabulary word is a word borrowed from another culture or language. For example, any English business name is going to be written in katakana because it is not a Japanese word. For example, McDonald's is Makudo Norudo, and that is all katakana. There, and there are some that surprised me, such as ramen. Ramen is a word traditionally that comes from China, so ramen was also written in katakana as opposed to hiragana, which is used to only write words that are from Japan. Names from foreign languages are also written in katakana, and we were all excited to learn how to write our names in Japanese. So this was a major selling point for that alphabet. And then from there on out, we would spend the rest of our two months here learning kanji as far as writing and reading goes. Kanji are the Japanese characters that you are probably fairly familiar with seeing, and there are a lot of them. There are well over 50,000 of them altogether. Our teacher said that sounds crazy, but not to worry, the average Japanese person does roughly know around 2,000 kanji only is what some tests have shown. And I mean, that still sounds like a lot, but it's doable. Our teacher went on to say that uh, once you get used to it, you can guess the meaning of a lot of kanji based on context and um, similar images within the kanji. So it sounds like the hardest thing ever. It is difficult, but it's such a fulfilling thing to learn. And I now know kanji well enough to email and text message people in Japanese daily without using a dictionary or anything, for the most part. So if I can do it, you can do it as well. But at the time, I remember that first class, when our lesson schedule was being laid out before us, I was thinking, oh dang. So now for how we would learn Japanese grammar, the very important way in which we would structure the vocabulary we learned so that we could do what we all wanted to do and communicate to people in Japan. This desire to communicate was taken into great consideration when designing the lesson plan as a motivating factor, so that learning grammar that would be most useful to us initially to communicate would be taught first. This would be learning through practical application, like first learning a self-introduction, then learning how to ask for directions, and then learning how to order food. Our teacher went on to say that every time we used our new grammar and our new phrases in everyday life, the more they would embed themselves in our memory, and I find this very much to be true. I found that repeating my order for ramen over and over again in class was difficult, 
but then the first time that I had to recall that same order at an actual ramen shop. It took a lot of time to mentally recall the vocabulary, but after that first time, it came much more quickly the second or third time. It's like there was a barrier that I had to breach mentally to use a new language in a real-life situation, but once that barrier was broken, my words would actually flow much more smoothly in sentences. So I guess the point that comes from this is that if you are learning Japanese on your own, try to use it verbally as quickly as possible, even if you don't feel ready, because I think that will greatly increase the speed at which you can speak. Our teacher said that confidence in speaking is a huge part of learning a new language, and she would like to build that confidence slowly in class by us just practicing with each other over and over again. And this would quickly culminate in us memorizing small speeches for us to present in front of the class. When I heard that, I was terrified. But now, looking back, memorizing those small speeches and presenting them under a bit of pressure was the best way to get my mind used to speaking Japanese in daily life, as well as internalizing the vocabulary I used and memorized so that I could bring Japanese to the front of my memory quickly when I needed it. Our teacher went on to say that after reading, writing, and speaking, of course, as you could already guess, the fourth most key component of learning a new language is listening comprehension. This would primarily be done by listening to recordings of people saying things in Japanese and then answering questions on what was said. And out of everything, in the beginning, this was the most difficult for me. So how can you learn all four of these things if you're on your own or not in Japan? And sorry if you've already learned Japanese or are already within the process of doing so, if this is repetitive. But I would like to address some of the resources for self-study now. And I do have a full 10 minute long video of this on my YouTube channel as well as on my Discord. I have many of these services linked in the Japanese Learning Resources channel. This podcast I won't really be teaching Japanese as much as I'd like to be focusing on adjusting to the culture in Japan. But here are some practical basics. So for reading and writing, it may not sound exciting, but repetition of action is key. And this is mainly copying down things over and over again while saying them out loud if you can, or saying them in your head even. A great resource for this is the free desktop app Anki, which is basically virtual flashcards. And you can download a hiragana pack, a katakana pack, and a kanji pack for vocabulary. At first, the app will show you a sound in English like ah, and then you will write down the corresponding hiragana character for that before the app reveals what the answer is. And eventually, the app will show you more complicated words like ikigai, which means a reason to get up in the morning. And then you write down the kanji characters for those as well. I recommend writing down the characters about 20 times each and then saying them out louder in your head while you do so. This is what we did in class to learn these characters. This app, Anki, is also available on Android and iOS, however, there might be charges for that one. And of course, you can always just make old-fashioned paper flashcards as well yourself. And I think the process of making a flashcard will help you learn the kanji as well. There are three more apps that are helpful for learning kanji, and I learned these from a TikToker that does content on learning Japanese called Tori Peebs. T-O-R-I-P-E-E-B-S. Anyway, they are number one, Kanji Go. Number two is Learn Japanese Kanji. That is the name of the app, very straightforward. And last, which is the one that she recommends the most highly, is called Kanji Lookup. This one also has a cool feature where you can take a photo of something written in Japanese and it will translate it for you. You can also use this app to write with your finger a kanji and then it will translate that for you as well. And all of these apps are useful because when practicing kanji, the order in which you write your strokes, the stroke order, is very important. I was confused about why in the beginning, but now I see that because a lot of the kanji have similar parts to them. If you learn how to write one the correct way, you can learn how to write the others much more quickly. And it's great for muscle memory too. So thanks to Hearn, great shout out to a great TikToker. Now speaking practice may be the most difficult thing to do if you are practicing self-study. However, here are some options that you have. Because again, memorizing things to say I think was the most important thing in order for me to get down the Japanese language. There is a free app called HelloTalk that you can use to connect with Japanese pen pals. And these are Japanese people that sign up to the app in order for them to practice English. So you guys can take turns practicing Japanese and English with each other 
usually through text message, which is very useful as well. However, at some points you can do phone calls. And if you do use this method to practice speaking and listening, then as a side bonus, you might end up making some friends in Japan that you can eventually meet and they might show you around, which is always a great way to travel, I think. Also, if you're learning Japanese with a friend, I think doing practice conversations with each other is a great way to memorize dialogue. This is something we also did in class a lot. And practicing with a friend is also a cool way to keep each other motivated. Those last two resources and options are a great way to practice listening for the most part as well. And on top of that, if you like Japanese media, movies, or anime, then uh, just watching things in subtitles and hearing things in Japanese is a great way to hear just how the cadence of a new language sounds. And if you hear that stuff enough, it can even subconsciously come out in the way that you end up speaking Japanese yourself, which is great for pronunciation, as well as sounding natural when you talk. And at the end of the day, listening and speaking practice all come down to learning grammar, and that was the thing that I had the most trouble finding the discipline to study myself. Here, if you can buy a textbook or download a free textbook, or get one of these services like Duolingo or Busu that kind of teach you through an application, I think those are invaluable resources to structure out your lesson plans to learn grammar. I have immense respect for the science of education and educators who dedicate so much of their life to find out the best ways to digest bit by bit something as vast and huge as a whole new language and culture. Education is such a valiant field of study that I know very little about, so I can just trust the professionals and the textbooks that are created. And the textbook that we used was called Genki, and I really do recommend this one. It came with the textbook, the workbook, that most of our homework came from, and a CD for listening practice. Now I can also not stress the benefits that learning in a class with a trained teacher gave me. We had a lot of interactive practice, which I think was invaluable, as well as constant guidance from a native language speaker. And these lessons ended up being very fun, from games, I know I sound childish, to uh, making up kind of fun dialogues between each other, where we could laugh about funny characters we made up to, to practice conversations with each other, and also get to know each other in the process. I know that the online methods of learning like Duolingo and Busu kind of help with these things as well by offering games and different ways of learning. And our teacher did stress that learning stuff in new and different ways constantly and mixing up your routine does help with internalizing information as well, as opposed to the same process over and over again. This can also help combat a learning plateau, which is something our teacher Sato-sensei warned us about. A learning plateau is kind of the feeling that you're not really making progress or getting anywhere even though you're putting in the same amount of study as you always have been. And this can be a huge barrier or deterrent for what I think is the biggest factor of learning a new language which is just dedication and uh, keeping with it, not giving up. Our teacher said that this is natural and more of a issue with perception than actually learning. There's an excitement, kind of like a honeymoon period, she said, once you're learning a new language and you can first have a conversation and you can understand a couple new characters. But after a while, this kind of excitement fades and it's less of an instant gratification of understanding smaller new things. And this is when you're really building up your bigger language capability. That's more internalized and it's just harder to recognize especially more day by day. So keep that in mind if you are studying Japanese and it's starting to seem more and more impossible. I know I would have likely given up myself if I wasn't in Japan and I didn't have the blessing and added benefit of immersion where I heard the Japanese language daily and I needed to use it daily, often using it during exciting times in my life or doing things that I had interest in. So major points to you if you're studying and you have to keep this motivation up without being in Japan. You're a boss. I think that if you can fit into your schedule even 20 minutes of vocabulary and kanji practice a day and just keep that constant, it will be beneficial to you. And if you follow a structure of a textbook and set yourself goals to finish a certain chapter before the month ends or something, you will start to learn at a rate that might surprise you.
Sato-sensei concluded our introductory meeting by saying that we would have five days of classes a week, each with two to three lectures uh, per day, and every lecture would be about 90 minutes, ranging from vocabulary, grammar, and cultural studies, which I did end up enjoying a lot. You probably could have guessed that since I'm now making media on learning about Japanese culture. So obviously it doesn't have to be like three hours a day of study, but the more time you can put into your language a day, the quicker you will learn. This kind of intensive immersion was very helpful for me to get the basics down to a place where learning by speaking was much more interesting to me. So I think that's just about enough of me talking about education for one episode, and I will soon get into more interesting things like Wi-Fi and going out into the city for a night. So our class concluded and we were on our way out the door. I was talking with Michael and he was always kind of straightforward, so we kind of mentioned that the whole thing seemed very undoable and difficult, which was deceptive because at the end of the day he did end up being a better student than I was. After that we met in the quad and we met up with Amber and Jack and I introduced them to Michael and while we were talking we did realize that we all needed to get Wi-Fi in our apartments. So I hit up my tutor on the line app. Kohei, and because it was kind of mandated that he was to be my friend, I was wondering if he could help me figure out how to get Wi-Fi. And he was an angel, of course, and he did. So if you do go to Japan and end up getting a department where you as well need to get Wi-Fi, it can be as easy as this. I did have pocket Wi-Fi from the airport, but it was kind of too slow to run on my computer because I did want to stream movies and Netflix. Because I was living in a kind of rural place in Japan, I kind of wanted to choose some media that mirrored that for my leisure time. And I found an anime called From the New World that I really enjoyed. It took place also kind of in the Japanese countryside. And witnessing things in my daily life like the rice fields and the rolling hills of Osaka reflected in an artist's animation was somehow really cool and led me to appreciate both things, the real and the fiction, to a new level. Anyway, anime tangent over. Kohei met us outside of the school cafeteria called the Shokudo. By the way, if you are going to study abroad in Japan, the school cafeteria or Shokudo is a great place to study, meet friends, and eat really, really cheap food that, in my experience, has been great quality. But I'll get more into that in another episode. So that's a side note. We went to the city to get Wi-Fi from a huge department store. It's called Yodobashi Camera, and there are actually stores like this located all over Japan. There are like seven stories of shopping center that you can kind of buy almost anything at, from camera equipment to fashion to, of course, Wi-Fi. This was my first time in a bigger part of the Japanese city with a friend, kind of, that spoke Japanese and could lead me around. And buying Wi-Fi for everyone, and for yourself too, is really just as easy as asking a store attendant um, to buy Wi-Fi and then giving them your address. They'll look up your address in a database and see what companies cover your area and then they'll get you your Wi-Fi set up for the correct configuration. This would be something that would be difficult for me to do in Japanese, so I was very grateful for this to be so easy. Another helpful tip, by the way, that I did touch upon in the last episode. If you do move to Japan, it's nice to have your address written down on a piece of paper or screenshotted on your cell phone. Oftentimes it's in kanji and it's easier to show a photo of something if you can't write kanji out yourself or if it's difficult for you to say the names of the cities or the prefectures. I had a screenshot of my address on my phone, so that was helpful. It was like $25 for each of our routers and then we all had Wi-Fi. Amber said that she really needed to do online classes in order for her to make space for her study abroad this summer, so she needed Wi-Fi quickly. Jack followed this up by saying he was excited to get Wi-Fi again so he could watch uh, some videos that I don't need to go into, but Amber quickly playfully slapped him for this. And I, of course, was excited to watch Netflix. We all got our Wi-Fi. And since we were already in the city, the closest city by the way being Umeda, we decided to stay there for dinner and possibly a night out. We sent a message to the group Facebook, which by the way, if you are traveling in a larger group, making a Facebook or a group line is a great way to communicate to everybody. 
and quickly we got several other people that were excited to kind of have their first night out in Japan. And since everyone had a Japanese tutor, which is a Japanese student, assigned to help us out in a new culture, several of the Japanese students were also excited to come out with us, which was invaluable because they showed us kind of how to have a nice night out in Japan, which typically is an izakaya or a Japanese tavern. These are amazing places to eat and drink, and I'm gonna get into that from now. So in the end, about seven of the exchange students came out to meet us, and six of their tutors who are Japanese students in Osaka University came out with them. And this was my first glimpse and experience of how social life in Japan is different from what I've seen in America. So it started with the five of us waiting at the station for the rest to arrive. And we were told by Kohei that we would be going to an izakaya, and our group would get a private room where we could sit around a table and sit on the floor and enjoy ourselves with food and drinks. And before I get into the event, I just remember so clearly thinking at this time how happy I was. I think as a student, and definitely through many people's lives at different times, there is a lot of uncertainty for the future, there is a lot of self-doubt sometimes of what you should pursue with your goal. And I haven't really gotten too much into my personal life, but as everyone knows, there are always some nagging things that bother you in the back of your mind, even if you're having fun, or worries that refuse to leave you alone. But I remember pretty clearly at that time, those worries that were always kind of lingering there in my mind, kind of fading and drifting away. Nothing too heavy really, just kind of a nice feeling I remember. Definitely in part because I was meeting cool people in an exciting place. The neon lights around Tokyo were turning on for the nighttime, and I felt like everyone around the city was dressing very cool and sharp, and there was definitely an air of vibrance around. But aside from how cool I thought Japan was, I think this positive feeling came more so from the fact that I kind of took a leap and did something I wanted to do on my own. I worked hard for it, and I felt a sense of accomplishment and wonder. I was seeing so many new things every single day and every hour of every day. And that made it seem like so many doors were opening up and so many new possibilities for the future were presenting themselves. I felt like I could do more because I did this one thing independently. I think a fair amount of my insecurities came from my image of the future being too narrow and too set in stone without much flexibility. But I feel like traveling this way because it's something that I personally wanted to do kind of opened my mindset and made these issues I had with my future or any sort of employment or my career path seem a bit more inconsequential and insignificant. I felt like there could always be new exciting opportunities I could find if I looked for them. And that feeling kind of stuck with me through my whole trip and even after my trip. So that's another small positive thing that came from traveling and specifically with some great people in a country I was very excited to be in, but probably will happen if you travel anywhere. And a final thing I would like to add on to that is, I think my whole life, my parents did raise me with that mentality that if I work for something, I can definitely do it, and to be open-minded, and flexible. But I think at some point, you have to find that out for sure, for yourself. And I feel so blessed that they always supported my hopes to go abroad as well, and motivated me to explore and travel. And I know some people don't have that in their life, so if that's you, then I do hope you can find the support and motivation to travel. So, anyway, enough about that, but I hope that traveling for you brings a lot of positivity as well. So, everybody showed up and we walked to the izakaya. I immediately loved how there were these small, narrow streets with shops on both sides. Shops on 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th stories with signs, neon signs usually, kind of going up each wall and building. Even small alleyways seemed kind of packed with people excited to go out for their nights. Alright, so I would like to take a small break from this narrative now to answer some questions, or a question actually that was submitted to me for this podcast. And if you guys don't know, you can send me a voice message. The link is in my TikTok bio as well as my YouTube bio, as well as in my Discord. Or if you are just listening, then the link to share a voice message with me is anchor.fm forward slash Westmather forward slash message.
That is anchor.fm, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M forward slash W-E-S-M-A-T-H-U-R forward slash M-E-S-S-A-G-E. So this question is from Narciso. And by the way, I always appreciate your comments and coming on my live streams too. So thank you for that. And then let's see what you have. Hey Wes, I just wanted to start off by saying that your videos have inspired me to work harder to study abroad in Japan. And my question is, is it harder to make friends in Japan than America? And would you say social life in Japan is better than America? First of all, thank you so much for saying that. That means more to me than so many people know. And I'm wild excited for you to study abroad and chase your dream. I know it does seem like a very tricky thing to pull off in the beginning, but you got this and I'm excited for you and a bit envious too because I miss my time studying here. So as far as socializing here, I think I touch a fair amount on how the differences are with group dynamics. However, making friends, let's talk a bit about that. I hate to sound repetitive when I say that I don't think it's easier or harder or better or worse to make friends here as opposed to your home country, although I don't know the cultural dynamics in every country that you may be from. But mainly comparing Japan and America, and for most foreigners here, the main difference may be your initial impression when making friends as a foreigner or somebody that might be an outsider. In my experience, this can definitely be a benefit for making friends because there are a lot of people in Japan that have immense interest in the world outside of Japan. This includes meeting foreigners, practicing English, and learning about other cultures. I've had many people approach me and kind of ask to practice English or introduce themselves, ask if I need help around, and friendships have come out of that. Not always, of course. I mean, interest is not the key way of making a friendship, but it's a cool way to break the ice with somebody. This is always welcome, and I'm happy for it, but I will say also that bonding over a difference such as this can kind of only be surface level, and, and closer friends may come out of common interests like bonding over music or something else, even if the person is more shy about connecting with somebody from another culture. And this does lead me to the part about making friends here that can be more tricky. Because your initial impression is often somebody that is an outsider, some people might be nervous or hesitant about talking with you. If somebody feels their English skill is less than what they want it to be, they may assume that you don't speak Japanese or that you won't be so patient with their less than perfect English. I've had good friends admit this to me after years of friendship that that was some of their thoughts in their head when we first met. Also friends have told me that when they first met me they were nervous that I wouldn't really understand Japanese culture and it would be tricky to socialize. And I understand being nervous about different things, especially because Japan is an extremely homogeneous society where in most cases everybody's interacting with people that have the same culture and the same cultural understandings as of what to expect from a friendship. However, these things are as well fairly base level. I would say that if you take initiative for friendship like I have in the past sometimes, regardless of Japanese language capability, I think many people will be happy to be your friend, especially when they see that many foreigners have an open mindset about Japanese activities, foods, and socializing. And at the end of the day, this first impression as an outsider or a foreigner is really just base level. And I think friendships across any border or any culture really depend on your base character. And these are things you can easily find out about a person after spending a bit of time with them. My best friends here I've connected with over music and shared interests, or just recognizing that we both have a common level of respect for each other, so that we would like to get to know each other and we enjoy each other's company. So I think if you get past that mental block that, of course being here you will be different and many people's first impressions of you is only that you're different. You can remember that that is, that is just that, that is only a first impression. So once I kind of got that mindset down, I became much more outgoing with meeting new people and joining new groups. And that's when I really made my best friends here. Sometimes you might have to take that initiative, so I hope you pull the trigger on that and then I hope that also... If anybody is more nervous or hesitant around you, you don't take that as a negative sign or let that ruin any confidence that you might have about trying new things and going out to meet new people. I love the friends I've made here. I find them to be very caring 
extremely trustworthy, very loyal, not to mention wild, funny, sometimes crazy, and just all around exciting people to have in my life. And of course, the same is to be said with my friends back in America. So I hope this answer was helpful. As far as social life being better here or in America, I think that there are quite a lot of amazing activities to do in Japan. And I really love how accessible everything is by public transportation, how many great cafes, diners are affordable, and how many nature-oriented events there are. As well as how some tight-knit groups of friends have kind of accepted me into their circles, which I do feel extremely blessed for. I hate to kind of sidestep both your questions, but also I don't think I can really say one is better or one is worse. I like both equally, but I can probably say because I'm new to Japan, everything, even the more simple things here, are kind of more exciting and fresh to me. So even if my friends will be hanging out by the river or in a small Japanese park and they might feel that is the most simple thing ever and they might feel like all the exciting things to do are in other countries or in America, I very much enjoy those memories a ton as well. So if you're traveling, I think, and I hope you have the same experience. And also listen to the thing about the group dynamic that I talk about in this podcast if you have the time. If you have any chances to join school clubs, I think that's an amazing way to make long-lasting friendships over common interests. And if you're not in school, then they have social groups like pickup games for sports. Or you can check out meetup.com and they have groups in Osaka, Tokyo that meet up for pickup games of sports or photography meetups or hiking groups. So it does take a bit of effort, but I think it's a very fulfilling process. Alright, I hope that answered some of your questions. And I'm always excited for more questions you might have or even follow-ups on this question if I was not clear about something. I also got a question from Seth, however that voice recording did show up blank for me so Seth if you're hearing this I'm sorry I didn't quite get your question so please send it again if you hear this or uh, comment it on one of my other platforms I'm excited to hear what you have to say and with that I'm going to go back into my first time out in Osaka we then arrived at the izakaya and if you guys don't know an izakaya is a Japanese restaurant usually focused around going out drinking at nighttime it usually translates in the dictionary to tavern however that doesn't quite explain it they usually serve barbecue chicken yakitori or an assortment of hors d'oeuvres to have to eat while you drink. And one of the first things I learned is that Japanese drinking culture often revolves around eating. And a second thing I learned is that Japanese drinking culture is very group oriented. And what this means is usually it's expected for everybody to already be involved in one single group. This group is often a school group or a club or a sports team or a group of people that work together. People from the same class. Any way that people can already kind of know each other. This does serve two purposes, the first of which being that since everybody does know each other, they can kind of drop their guard and speak more naturally around each other. In Japanese language and culture, there is an emphasis on being polite to strangers, to put it simply. Even in Japanese grammar around people you don't know, you're supposed to speak in a different way than the more casual grammar that you use when you speak with friends. This even extends to when you use somebody's first name or not, or the honorific after somebody's name that you use. So if you go out to an event and you already kind of know the group, then you can already you can automatically have a less stressful night out which is important i think if you have a work intensive life kind of like a student or many salarymen do if it makes it any more clear to contrast this to american socializing i would say i was much more used to going out to meet friends of friends or freely bringing my friends to another friend's event after asking of course and when we would go out we would also often go out with the intention of meeting new people and many american parties house parties or bars are set up for this to be the case but a japanese izakaya caters to this group setting by often having tables and sometimes even enclosed rooms where you and your group of friends can eat and drink kind of in privacy when this happens and i learned this that night for the first time i immediately see those friends really relax easily people i thought were very quiet and reserved suddenly became kind of wild making random funny jokes and getting kind of loud and that is before we even drank it all actually and in contrast to that i saw all of the exchange students acting very much 
the same that they did in class. The quiet ones remaining quiet, and the ones that were more outgoing seeming outgoing as ever. So I definitely don't think either one is better or worse. Just an interesting thing to recognize. Anyway, the second function that a group dynamic of socializing plays is that you can immediately recognize kind of the hierarchy of everybody. And let me explain this so it sounds better than that, I think. If you meet up with a group and everybody's in school or work, you kind of know the seniority of everybody. And in Japanese culture, you kind of treat people that are older than you or have more experience in a system than you as a senior or senpai with a bit more respect because you know that they know more things than you and you allow them to kind of lead the situation. You do things like serve their drinks or allow them to lead a conversation. And to reverse that, you kind of relinquish some of the responsibility of the night out until it is your turn to be the older person or the senpai within the group. And then the senpai in the group kind of take initiative by choosing the place, leading the conversations, and kind of sharing their experience with everybody through taking charge of the night. That is all something I was completely oblivious of at the time, and kind of still I'm learning now. But I could tell that night, by just the way that the younger students would talk to the older students, that this sort of recognition of seniority played a big part in socializing. Those are two fairly basic descriptions of how group dynamics in Japan work, and of course this is not the same for everybody in Japan or the way that every single group works. Just mainly a generalization. But now we'll go into other things that I saw on my first night out. And I would like to preface this by saying I think you can have a great night out in Japan without drinking at all. I think that benefits you financially as well as having a clear mind when you address a new situation. But I did myself enjoy drinking that night. And I saw an exciting menu full of drinks I had no idea what they were. But to make things easier, one of the senpai or older students recommended that we all do nomi hodai, which is all you can drink. That being the case, we all paid about $25 and we were given a menu where we could order anything off of, and as much as we wanted for the next hour and a half, so that I could try everything. And the first thing I tried was a chuhai, which I did not know what it was, and I now know it is umeshu, which is plum sake mixed with juice. And it was delicious and it was dangerously easy to drink, so please enjoy yourselves responsibly. That nomi hodai, or all you can drink, is another cultural practice that's pretty common in Japan. Another Another one being something I just mentioned barely, that is you serve the drinks of others. Oftentimes when you order a beverage, it comes in a jug or a big bottle. Usually the kohai or the younger students or younger employees will pour this for the older ones. If you see somebody's cup running low, you can also fill it up for them. And this is considered fairly good manners. This leads into another thing in Japan that I didn't see much of here because everyone was playing pretty nice, but it's called ikinomi, which kind of translates into peer pressure. And this act of pouring other people's drinks kind of encourages them to drink more, to kind of further the enthusiasm of the night. There are also quite a lot of drinking games. Many of these are called batsu games or penalty games and are based around rhythm. One example that I can kind of explain more easily is the Yamanote Sen game, and that translates basically into categories. So the first person will say something like car brands, and then you'll go in a circle, and everyone will say a car brand like Toyota, Nissan, Subaru, or something. And the first person that is unable to think of a car brand or car name that no one else has said already uh, loses and then they have to drink their cup. Again, I don't advocate for anything but the most responsible drinking ever, but these are cultural practices that I saw and were interesting to me. But there were endless of these games. And I saw most of these games when I joined school clubs later and people would go out for dinner at izakayas and drinks after the club activities had ended. There's one called Horenzo, which means spinach, in which the first person pretends to have two imaginary spinaches and says Horenzo, Horenzo, and then on the third Horenzo they pretend to pass them to other two people, and in that rhythm you pass them around until somebody makes a mistake. This again, it's really awkward to explain verbally, so I might try to make a YouTube video on this later on. But this also serves a function of kind of having everyone in the group included, which is cool because some of the gohai or newer younger students might often be shy when they join a new group. 
And again, when these groups are joined, it's usually through the proper channels, as opposed to just inviting a friend. I did find this out later myself when I did invite two friends to an event, and I asked if I could bring them, and I should have probably felt some hesitation. Um, that time it worked out fine, but I realized it was a big halt in the group activities, kind of with more self-introductions, and people kind of walking more on their toes and taking care around those two new people. And the two new people also acting a bit more shy around the group as well. And then I went out with those two people within their group at another time, and saw them act completely differently when they were in surroundings with people they were familiar with. I'm sure it's all a lot more complex than I'm getting at here with this description. And even after years being here, I am still learning these things. But these are basic things that I recognized, and that were later explained to me too from friends. Even if these practices do seem a bit rigid, I would say that they have a very positive outcome, especially on students that might be a bit more shy. They'll have a place where they're fully accepted and can act however they want to. Even though the emphasis of the night out does focus around a group, I think that really does allow for the individual characteristics of each person to come out more comfortably. Because of the longevity of these group activities, people get to know each other very well and I think begin to feel pretty comfortable with each other. Many of the Japanese students that came out with us had the same major, which was obviously English or something that had to do with global studies. So they knew each other, and I could tell that the freshmen that were also tutors were excited to be part of this group too. And another element of that night that I remember really making me happy was, I really felt that I could kind of just be myself and act however I wanted, with a new group of people in a new place. So off of drinking, the food that is often served at izakaya is usually yakitori, grilled chicken. Oftentimes, an appetizer that comes for free is iramame, or cabbage with some dressing on it. Other popular foods at izakaya would be fried tofu, or many times the Korean dish of kimchi as well, which is great, really spicy and healthy. I think the practice of often having food with you while you drink is kind of healthy, and even with something like no mihorai, it makes sure that you don't really drink too fast, because you have to be eating as well. Sometimes, at least, that is the case. This is the time also that my tutor Kohei kind of opened up to me and said that he was really excited to travel some days, but he did have a bit of a fear of going abroad with his English capability and adapting to a new culture. It was kind of strange hearing the person that was kind of responsible for me adapting to Japanese culture say the same thing about other cultures, but it really helped me connect with him. And his English was amazing, by the way. All of these students that were assigned to us were extremely clever, and they were very inspiring people to meet. And it was another glimpse of how welcoming people could be in Japan, which kind of set any fears of not being accepted here to rest. Later on, I had encounters with complete strangers that really helped me out, some of which became extremely close friends after these chance encounters. And that does kind of land within the territory of my next podcast, where I'm going to talk about more exploring on your own in Japan, and how I made some of my best friends there by chance. But for now, I'll just tell you that going out to an izakaya in Japan is extremely fun. And even though much of socializing here is kind of group-oriented, there are a lot of channels and ample ways that people are excited to get new people into these groups, especially travelers. Because many people in Japan, I've learned, have a lot of interest in learning about other countries and cultures too. And a lot of the education system here, I've been told, does focus on having sort of a global mentality. Even if the other culture's mentality is fairly different from what's standard in Japan. Jack that night was feeling kind of brave and got warm hot sake. So he got wild kind of quickly and started to ask all about Japanese bad words, which he was taught an ample amount of. But I think I might have to get into those in another podcast also. Amber and Sasha were there as well, and Sasha seemed to already be friends with everybody. I think I am a bit more quiet than she is, but that kind of helped me meet everybody too, to a deeper extent. And here is also where I learned a very helpful Japanese word, which is kampai, and that means cheers. And of course, going to an izakai is by no means the only thing to do on a night out in Japan. 
There are amazing places to go for karaoke, there are standing bars, there are normal kind of pub bars, or normal by American standards, and there are amazing nightclubs, as well as unique things to do like walks along the riverside, and amazing nighttime parks with night views. Ember said that night that she really wanted to go to group karaoke, and later I found out that karaoke in Japan is a very interesting experience, so I will talk about that in another episode also. I myself am very bad at singing, as you can probably guess by hearing my voice so much on this podcast. But I thought Amber was very cute and cool, so I accepted her invitation and said yeah, let's go for it. We had fun eating and drinking until the last train. We walked back to the station, and I think this is the first night that kind of helped cure my jet lag in the way that I stayed up pretty late. So for once, it was more difficult to wake up the next morning, because I had Wi-Fi and I watched plenty of that anime from the New World that night as well. So thank you for listening to episode 3. So, here we come to our final segment in which I teach Japanese words and phrases that pertain to the things I discussed within this podcast episode. And um, Brandon is somebody that is learning Japanese, so uh, here he is again, our co-host Brandon. Hey, yeah. So I guess I've only been really learning for about two months now, but I'm very passionate about it. So hopefully I can uh, answer any questions you might have. Yeah, and we have had conversations where we talk about his Japanese learning progression, and it seems impressive from my standpoint, without a doubt. So we'll jump into it, and I do discuss within this episode of Nightlife, and I would say the biggest term that is kind of not existent in English is izakaya, which is a Japanese tavern within literal translation, but actually something that doesn't quite exist in the West, which is kind of where they have a drinking and dining spot, because Japanese drinking culture does heavily rely on the process of eating while you drink. And an izakaya is a place where you kind of get served barbecue, usually yakitori, yakitori, which is fried chicken, and um, you drink with friends, and it's a very social form of drinking and eating. So that first word is, yeah, izakaya. Uh, have you heard of that word? Izakaya. Yeah, I actually have heard that word. Um, mm. It's not often that I have heard it, but I have heard it before. It's, I guess I uh, honestly also didn't know the meaning of it. Mm-hmm. It's just something yeah. you have heard, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I do see sometimes in uh, movies in Japan or anime that they say izakaya or the characters go out to an izakaya, and then in the subtitles mm-hmm. they translate it to tavern. However, I don't think tavern exactly connotes what it really is, which is kind of what I did describe. Usually, you go there with two uh, to you know ten to sometimes twenty to thirty friends, and you're seated in a table or a room. Uh, depending on how many people you're with and you just kind of eat and drink and you're served food along with your um drinks so it's more of a social i guess social diner a very social diner that does revolve around drinking that's very and cool the, so it's it's mm-hmm. probably not as common for one person to just show up to an uh, izakaya and mm. eat and drink on their own it's more like mm. purpose towards having friends and groups of friends show up together yes exactly it is a social environment without a doubt and they do have yakitoriya-san which is a place that is the same but it does not it's uh, not a social environment and then they have single booths for seating in that sort of setup so So tell uh, us something about eating in a tavern with your friends i know that uh, one of my favorite things is mm -hmm. if you're drinking alcohol what should you not do that is a very good question. So, uh, one thing that does govern a lot of Japanese culture is the senpai kohai sort of cultural law, which within a sort social group, there will be elders or people that are more kind of well-versed in that sort of a circle's tradition or whatever. 
and that's often somebody that's older and then they have sort of a uh, their priority so if you are younger than somebody you pour the drink for the older people if you're kohai which is the younger person you pour the drink for the elder person also if there's food served you often pass the plate to the older people first so that they can take their pick of the food and then you take it uh back to serve yourself and to be most honest, after you take the plate back to yourself, usually the senpai or the older person will also serve you your food as well, um, just because it's a polite thing to do. But that is just one kind of thing to help you ease your way into a Japanese social setting. And a second thing would be, if the food is almost out, you kind of never want to be the one to take the last piece of food. You kind of always wait uh, while you're talking and enjoying yourselves for somebody else to take it and most likely they will not take it also until you ask if anyone else wants it and if everyone says no then it's also kind of frowned upon to waste food so if you are the one that asks and everyone says no then take it for yourself if you're still hungry and enjoy those gotcha. would be true yeah mm -hmm. and um i know that there are some practices that should be mentioned when you're eating in mm -hmm. restaurant settings in Japan. For instance, mm -hmm. I've I've been told by uh, many of my friends that you one thing you should never do is put your chopsticks sticking up in your rice. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's very true. And that was never anything I was taught ex uh, explicitly when I was here in Japan. However, I never saw it done, and I did eventually learn that that is because when you do so, it in some form resembles oshiki, which is kind of like a Japanese gravesite and the chopsticks stick, sticking out of the rice resemble incense that you stick into a bowl of sand at a gravesite. So sticking your chopsticks into rice does have a connotation to a gravestone and in that form is bad luck because you don't want your food setting to have any sort of connection to someone's uh, passing. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to learn about the culture of eating in a tavern and with your friends, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there is extensive kind of... Um, culture that goes into that however at the base it is you know going out with your friends so even if you're a first time traveler to japan and you go out with friends to an izakaya just enjoy yourself and i think that's a fantastic place to really relax let loose and even with uh new friends in japan when i kind of go out to an environment where it does revolve around sort of eating and drinking it's a great time to practice japanese and really get closer to people uh through another language through another culture so it's a thing of enjoyment for me that's awesome. And I'm sure a lot of uh, your Japanese friends also just as much wanted to practice their English with you when they first met oh, yeah. you as you did with <laughs> Japanese. So Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, if, if anyone ever does think that a language barrier uh, kind of is a detriment to communication, I would say boldly the opposite. I think if your friends have any sort of inclination to learn English, if you do have a language barrier, there is an excess of conversation on cultural differences, on linguistic differences, and having a barrier for language with friends, there's an infinite, uh, infinite amount of things to talk about regarding your personal culture and personal language as opposed to theirs. So that's a cool thing. And that leads me to my second word, which is nomihodai, um, which is all you can drink. And I'm not sure they have that so much in America. I don't remember if they do. Uh, ha have you ever had that before? Basically paying... 15 to 20 um, bucks to just have an it's open open bar an open bar yeah i don't know if there's so much as an all you can drink as maybe uh occasionally i think in america you might see like what's called a kegger you go to like oh. a festival or something you pay 20 bucks or something like that mm -hmm. and they'll give you a cup and you just fill it up at the keg all night but that's not <laughs> often you, you see that it's not like something you would see in like a restaurant or setting or oh. a restaurant setting or anything like that that's more something you would see at like an event or yeah. a festival 
but yeah, yeah all you can drink in uh, Japan. That's that is something that's actually kind of common, isn't it? Oh, I would say very common. Um, so for chain isekais, for chain restaurants too, they often have a nomiho. No, so it's nomihodai, nomihodai. That is all you can drink. Uh, nomi means drink, and then hodai means basically help yourself. And then you, yeah, at the beginning you pay fifteen, twenty dollars. Usually it's ten to thirty dollars within the spectrum, and you can add on. Usually that is cocktails, and you can pay an extra two dollars for every person if you want that to include beer. And then that is just you can order as much alcohol as you would like within one hour to one hour and a half, depending on the restaurant's preferences. And yeah, I've I was heard surprised. of some restaurants. Mm-hmm. Sorry, <laughs> I was gonna say oh, I've, yeah, I've, okay. I've even heard of some restaurants that go all the way up to even three hours sometimes. Oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah. The, they have some that do all night, that do until five in the morning. Um, wow. Usually those ones are more expensive, of course. But mm-hmm. initially, I remember thinking this is dangerous for Americans. <laughs> We're yeah. going to try to get our money's worth out of this one. And um, yeah, that you know that can be the case. But mainly it's a way for people not to, to enjoy yourself and not to always have your mind constantly on the tap. A lot of Japanese cultural things have to do with comfort and within a societal practice. And I think Nomihodai is another way that became popular or is another cultural practice that be- became popular because if you pay that one payment at the beginning, then you don't have to have the discomfort of socially kind of gauging how much everyone drinks throughout your nights. Everyone's kind of like, it's a leveling field and everyone drinks as much as they feel is comfortable until the night ends. Yeah. So sake on me for the next two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, and if you want to treat someone to drinks, then it's just 30 bucks flat. You don't have to kind of gauge whether or not they're a heavy drinker if you want to treat them. That's great. And it's That's fun. great. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that works out a lot in favor whenever you're uh, like. I know in Japan they have a lot of business night out drinking, right? So like oh, a lot yeah. of a mm-hmm. lot of uh, salary men will go out and drink uh, with their coworkers, and a lot of managers will kind of like almost in a weird way force their um, employees <laughs> to go out and drink with them on like days where they yes. want to you know mm-hmm. celebrate any accomplishments that happened in the office yeah so i can see why as much as the drinking culture is a real thing in japan why mm-hmm. that would be an option there yes absolutely and there is a word for that too now that we are on are on the topic of words it's called uh, ikinomi which is i guess directly translates to peer pressure and um <laughs> you know it's not the best word of course but it's a good thing to be aware of that does exist culturally and uh ikinomi yeah if someone shouts that it essentially means that there's an expectation for you to drink and within you know it's uh yeah there are it's not the best thing it's not the worst thing but that's a uh, vocabulary word that you should be aware of ikinomi it's, is pure pressure it's funny uh and where i'm from Mm-hmm. Oh, a lot of my friends growing up, they used to say it's not pure pressure; it's just <laughs> your turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, no, there I, don't know if, I don't know if there's a way to translate that in Japanese, but that is. Oh funny. yeah, there is. Uh-huh. Yeah, nanka <laughs> just means yeah, not peer pressure. This is just a party. <laughs> Something I've heard, I've heard before as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> And you know, there's like set, there's a lot of culture revolving around Japanese drinking, from different drinking names to something called call karu, which is like a chant somebody does. And if you hear that chant, other people join in. You're expected to finish your drink. 
Um, but we'll get into that in another time, I think. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. Um, some other Japanese vocabulary words, uh, some easy ones. Wi-Fi, because I talk about how to get a Wi-Fi here. It's very easy, just Wi-Fi. Um, those phonetics correlate directly to hiragana, Wi-Fi, so that's simple one. Wi-Fi, where's the Wi-Fi, and that's the same. And uh, let's wrap it up here. I, I suppose this one would be a phrase. It's just plain, it's another word to say please. However, after you ask to order something, after you ask where the Wi-Fi is, you can just say onegaishimasu. That just, onegaishimasu. Yeah, exactly. There you go. It's something I believe you've heard often if you've ever indulged in any form of Japanese media. It just means kind of if you please. Uh, like one beer, namibiru uh, onegaishimasu. Uh, one beer, please. Uh, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, doko desu ka onegaishimasu. Wi-Fi wa kore desu ka onegaishimasu. Just, it kind of adds an air of politeness to whatever you're talking about if you throw that onto the end of your sentence. Yeah, um, I think that's also a word that you definitely will want to try to remember. Because mm, mm -hmm. I'm sure it's just as commonly used as sumimasen. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah, very much. It's it's uh something people will often say and it's probably something that you should mm -hmm. also often say as well when you Yes, in Japan. very much so. Do you uh, want to like try and somebody... break do you want to try and break down that word a little bit slower so people will Yes, yeah, thank back. you for saying that. Uh onegaishimasu. Onegaishimasu. But if you if you, if you read you it it'll actually have a u at the end so it'll look like it says onegaishimasu. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. But the exactly. U is silent, so just keep mm -hmm. that in mind when you're reading that word. Yeah, very true. So the S sound, the S at the end of any word actually is non-existent in Japanese phonetics. However, just through uh, linguistic linguistic norms, no one says the U. It's mm -hmm. onegashimasu, uh, desu, uh, west desu, west des. However, the only people now that really use uh, desu, onegashimasu would be like uh, hyogen, which is small dialects of like countryside dialects. So mm. if you say the U at the end, it kind of makes it seem like you're from the countryside. So if Japanese. you went out to like yeah. uh, Sendai for a day, would you more than mm. likely hear people out there uh, pronouncing yeah. things a little bit more? Yeah, Sendai would be a spot where I would imagine that you would often hear desu. And again, um, Hyojingo is the official Japanese dialect, which is what they speak in Tokyo, and that's what's taught in schools too. So. Uh, many young people use that as a default um, in many settings, unless in Sendai you're with a group of people that are also only in Sendai, in which they revert to their uh, native dialect, where they'll say the desu onegashimasu. Alright, that's man. Cool. That's something I haven't thought about in a while. <laughs> and yeah, I suppose that's enough Japanese for one day, and that yeah. concludes our final segment of uh, episode 3 of Travel Japan with West Method Podcast. So thank you again for listening. Uh, much admiration and respect for you if you are in taking on the task of learning Japanese. You got this. It's something I never thought I could do personally. But um, I, for the most part, did it. So points. Another good thing, too, about uh, Wes's Discord server is he does, in fact, have an entire group of channels dedicated to learning Japanese and he has a mm. pretty solid group of people in his discord that will more than happily share with you uh, different techniques and ways to learn Japanese as well. Yeah, that is correct. If you would like to uh, learn Japanese more, please check out the discord. Um, we have some people there that are 
fairly dedicated to teaching Japanese to others as well as being part of an environment where you're with other people learning the Japanese language which can be a strong factor of motivation. As always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you plan to work abroad or study abroad or just travel abroad to Japan, I hope this provides some sort of useful information. Please look for my further content on YouTube or TikTok. And if you would like to subscribe, then please go for it. I also have a Discord server where we discuss things about Japan, as well as watch a movie together every Friday night. And that Discord is playing a huge part in providing content for this podcast, as well as sourcing questions that it's good for me to answer. Also, my Instagram, WestMather, does show all of my media work in Japan if you have interest in photography or cinema. And if you would like to support the podcast, then there are links to my merchandise in my TikTok and YouTube bio. That would be WestMather Teespring. So, hope you guys have a great day. Goodbye.